Good morning, Heart and Soul. And thank you for joining us, for tuning in today. This is our second Sunday in Black History Month. And so we are focused today, as we do every year, on Black History, which gives us an opportunity. Well, we don't just do it during Black History Month, is what's true. We do it because Black History is American history. It is, in many ways, world history when we really look at the origin of humanity and where science said is the birthplace of humanity. And so, black history is today. And so, um, we have prepared something for you. you. If you were with us last week, you experienced it, and today as well. Welcome to Black History at Heart and Soul Center of Light. Thank you. 
right. Amen. I am just so grateful for the team that really put that together, um, namely Reverend Sonia Russell, who put the photos together, the video, and then the music team, Tammy Hall and Valerie Joy Fidmont and Liberta Laurel. I am so grateful, so, so grateful, so grateful. I am, I look forward to it each week. Don't be surprised if we pretend like we don't know when March kicks in and we just like accidentally play it the first Sunday in March, like, oops. So act like you don't know that we said in February we might accidentally play it in March. So <laughs> I'm loving it and I am grateful for, for the grounding. I, um, how I got over. Lord. My soul looks back in wonder how I got over. Sometimes in the telling of how we got over, and we all got over. If we're standing, so many of us have standing, breathing today, there's a how I got over story. And even if we were now at your memorial service, there still is within that service, there's the story about how that one, that whose life we're celebrating, how that one got over. So there's always an opportunity to look back. Today, though, I want to I say let's look back at the broader piece. Sometimes our how I got over story is, is really narrow. And sometimes in the telling of it, we come out sounding like the hero. It's what we did. We were bold and bodacious. We were fearless in it. But when we look more closely at how we got over, my soul, let your soul look back and see that there are those, the ancestors, that there are those historically who provided the way so that you could stand bodaciously and live to tell it, so that you could breathe a sigh of relief, so that you would have a modicum of freedom of the liberation to even declare or perceive your story in a personal, magical, with you starring in it. I'm going to invite us to, to expand that. And, and I want to start by reminding you that we are on an adventure in faith. And our intention on this leg of the journey through multiple pandemics is to have a conscious intention and awareness that we are moving forward together. And, and I just need to say that if you're not paying attention, you'll get caught up that every step be in forward motion that every step be measurable and that you are able to discern that you are always moving forward. But history reveals to me at least that it don't always look like that. Sometimes it looks much more circuitous in terms of the, the path that is taken to freedom, the path that is taken to, well, shoot, in my life. It has not been a forward path for my own personal liberation as I have wanted to change and adapt things in my life. It has not been where I just said it and then skipped to Malou forward. It has often been that I started and then forgot that I had started. 
And then had ended up going back, and it looked like starting again, and it looked like I was undoing it. And what is the saying? Two steps forward and three back? It has been all of that, and yet I'm here. So this moving forward together has all... I'm going to ask you all to get ready, because this is not... I know it's... Mm, it isn't necessarily what it sounds like, but it never has been that. And so where I want to land is in Oberlin, Ohio. I want to talk first about the city, <clears throat> the city of Oberlin, Ohio in the 1850s was a magnet for fugitive slaves. And it was, a well, y'all can imagine, it was on, the only place that could be those places that drew fugitive ind individuals who were fugitives from having been enslaved. See, I'm correcting my language here, even as I go. Because, and, and, and I want us to have some patience, and I want us to have some appreciation that history is written in a time that it's written. And some of us, we've, all of us have lived in the times that we've lived. And so we have language that is from that time. And even as we update it, we're going to have to ask for some understanding, some patience. And then I'm going to say like folks used to say to me, you're going to have your turn. So you can, you, can, you can either get on board right now. And then later on, you can, after I'm gone, you can say, you know what she said? She told me I was going to wish that I had. And you can do it now. You can do it later. It don't matter. But I'm just going to, I'm going to ask for some patience around this because there's a story I want to tell. And, and I don't know that you, I can be counted on to correct my language as I go. So here, here's the idea that, that, um, let me give you a sense of the, the kind of energy that's in Oberlin. So Oberlin College was founded in 1833. And by 1835, it was the first college to admit African Americans. So they had in the classes, not like in a separate section. So the classes were mixed in that way. So you'd be in, so black folks would be right in there with the white folks. It was, you, you see, Oberlin College, it says, was an idea, was a dream before it was even an idea, before it was a place. So it was a utopian, hmm, you know, just as I said that word, I, 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 I want to qualify it. it. It was in its own way utopian, but it in, and it included, it was a, a Christian, and, and, and it had its limitations. It was going to be this and not that, and this and not that, but part of what it was to be was open. So in 1835, we had this, this admixture of folks of color and folks who had been formerly, all of that going on. And then by 1837, it was the first college to also admit women. So they're breaking up all the pieces. Can you feel the energy of this? So, so it's, 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 I'm inclined to say it's a bit of a hotbed of activity. So you can see when I say it was a magnet 
for fugitive, formerly enslaved persons, you can see how that would be true. You'd, if anything, you'd be like, I'm just going to try to get myself to Oberlin, into Ohio, and specifically to Oberlin no matter what. Yes, does that make sense? All right. Um, and by 1858, it was surely the most racially integrated community in the United States with white and black citizens living, studying, working side by side. <laughs> Folks of o Oberlin used to, their motto was that they were, their claim to fame, they said, was that they were one of the most notorious refuges for fugitive slaves in the North. So what you need, what I, and I wanted to tell you that so you'd know that that was not by accident. They were proud of that. They were like, that's who we are. That's who we be. When you get in here, something else happens. So you, you, you can't make it up because, no, let me, let, me, let me stop. You can make up whatever you want. <laughs> let, me, let me just, let me try to just tell the story here. So you can imagine that if Oberlin is a magnet for those who have escaped slavery, particularly from Kentucky area, you know what I mean, from, from parts close by, it's also a magnet as of 1850 when you have the Fugitive Slave Act, which says that there can be folks self-deputized and otherwise who, oh, this is sounding like now. Oh, Lord. Okay. Self-deputized and otherwise, who can then go into free states, frankly, anywhere, and identify, it turns out. Now, there are some who are reputable. <laughs> How do you say reputable slave catchers? But let me just say individuals who are reputable and they are really making sure that they have the warrants and all the paperwork they need and the identification and they're doing that. But you can see that it's a marketplace that is rife with opportunity for forgery and false identification and all the things that would just say you. And there's a story that I want to share very specifically with you because there is a, a man, and I, wait, I want to get my note because I want to make sure that I'm doing this right. So, oh, let me first tell you this before I get to the specific man whose story I want to share with you. That, so, a magnet for those who have escaped slavery. A magnet for those who are looking for those who have escaped slavery. You can see how that would match up. And here's the system that that happens in. Is, so when someone is caught identified as an escaped slave, because that would be what they would say about that individual, they could be taken then to the fugitive slave commissioner. And here's how that worked out. The commissioner would be paid $10 for every certificate of removal. So if the commissioner looks at whatever's being said and, and uh, considers that, yes, that person is the person you're looking for, they they belong to a person elsewhere. And so they would give a, what's called a certificate of removal that granted that slave hunter um, permission to 
take that person away. And that, then that commissioner would make $10. If, however, the commissioner said, no, that, this, none of this matches. This isn't your person. You can't take this person. The commissioner would get $5. Now, I'm not going to spend another moment with you trying to figure out how that worked. Because what I know is, you know what I know, is that that would be that one, any individual, depending upon their expenses in a given month, might be challenged to see that person as not enslaved, properly enslaved, and send them on. You, you can begin to see the, the economy of scale there. So because of all of that, the citizens of Oberlin really despised the Fugitive Slave Act. And they were not cooperative, not at all, around it, and vowed to resist it at every opportunity. We's like an Ober Oberliners, I guess it would be. They were determined to rescue any black person who fell into or were captured by, by uh, slave catchers. If they saw it, they got right in there. You know what I'm saying? They got right up in it. So look, here's the story I want to share with you. This one is about John Price. And so it's said that in the early spring of 1856, a black stranger named John Price showed up in Oberlin. He was nearly starving and wearing raggedy clothes and speaking with an unmistakable Kentucky accent. There was little question that Price was a fugitive. But the people of Oberlin didn't care. He was granted, uh, he entered the town, he was entered in the town records as a poor stranger. That's how they logged him and granted a stipend of $1.25 a week until he could find work. The payment to Price was authorized by the village clerk, who was a free black man, and the son of a white plantation owner. He was a graduate of Oberlin College, and Langston, uh, th the man's name is John Mercer Langston, and he was the first black lawyer in Ohio, and one of the first black public officials anywhere in the United States. Now his older brother, who was also an Oberlin College graduate, would soon play a central role in this particular uh, situation with John Price and very specifically in the last great fugitive slave trial before the Civil War. So here's the deal. John Price lived quietly for about two years in Oberlin. He was working on a farm as a laborer and just all of it. And then one day he was recognized by a slave catcher. Now, that slave catcher had actually come to Oberlin looking for somebody else, but didn't find that somebody else and said he recognized John Price as a, who should have been enslaved to one of his neighbors. And so he's now working that out. They, they cooked up a, a scheme to get him that included paying a youngster about $10, I believe I recall, and the youngster was to go to, to John Price's home and say, come ride with me. You know, I'm going hither and yon, and just come ride with me, and he did. And then there was the ambush. But folks saw it. So 
because they knew Oberlin was not the place to be catching folks and trying to hold them there, they took him to a neighboring town. I think it's Wellington. And um, so they now have him. But the Oberlin folks are like, that don't stop us. The town line doesn't stop us. So they go right on over there. And, they, and then they pick up the Wellington people along the way, too. And so they're all there. We have all of these anti-slavery activists in Oberlin and Wellington. And they rushed to where they were holding them. And when they got there, they, they're dining, but they hide out in the attic. And, and there's this confrontation, and one thing leads to another. But ultimately, they end up getting him out of there, like on somebody's back, and throwing him into a wagon, and off he goes. And they get him to Canada. And so he's away. But in all of this, they arrested. And you can see, no, you can't. So you have to probably go to the next slide for you. And uh, y'all going to have to do, you can't count on me to do all the research and provide all the stuff. Y'all going to have to do some Googling and some Wikipedia and, you know, all the things to see. What you see is a photo here of there were 37 main folks who were a part of that main group from Oberlin in particular who had come. And so they were ultimately charged. And then two of the folks, the charges kind of stuck, and there was actually a trial around that. And um, the, the older brother, uh, Langston, was one of those. And so right in the center, you can't see it now, but I'm going to show it to you later, he is there in that photo. And you see it's a mixed photo, everybody. So you have, and, and I want to say this, we already know it. There has never been a time. When we talk about the Underground Railroad, if there hadn't been allies of all stripes and colors and religiosity and all the things, that would not have been a thing at all. And so this is, it seems unusual to us. It seems like an anomaly, and in its own way it is. But what I want to say is it's been a constant. All of it has not been recorded. Just like your life, all of your life has not been recorded. And there have been those folks who some of us might think were the most unlikely ally. The one who really, so when your soul looks back and wonder how you got over, I'm saying get the whole photo. Get the whole picture. Make sure you cover the entire landscape, all the folks. And they're going to look different. A lot of them, you're not even going to know. They paved the way, and they don't look like you, however you look. Because the way this thing comes about is that it takes all of it. Oh, so look, here's what I know, is that on that day that John Price was captured, Love was in need of love. What I know for sure is that, what I know for sure is that the story could have gone very different. He could have been just among the folks. A lot of us have seen 12 Years a Slave. And we know that part of that slave catching with the, with the, uh, the Fugitive Slave Act meant all you needed was a warm body. Love's 
always in need of love. I'm going to let Prannis and Valerie tell you about it. Good morning or evening, friends. Here's your friendly announcer. I have serious news to pass on to everybody. What I'm about to say could mean the world's disaster. Could change your joy and laughter to tears and pain. It's that love's in need of love today. Don't delay, send yours in right away. And hate going round, breaking many hearts. Stop it, please, before it goes too far. of evil plans to make it your possession and it will if you let it destroy everybody we all must take precautionary measures if love and peace your treasure then hear me when I say it's that love's in need of love today don't don't delay send yours in right away oh hopes going round Breaking many hearts that would be hate. But stop it, stop it, please, before it's gone too far. Oh, oh, oh loves, come on, in need yeah, of love today. Don't delay, send yours in right. And hate going round, breaking many hearts. We've got to stop it, stop it, stop it, please, before it goes too far. Ooh, ooh.
before it goes too far. Thank you, Brannis. Thank you, Valerie Joy. Thank you, Stevie Wonder. You see, when my soul looks back and wonders how I got over, I got over because love was present. I got over because someone cared enough, because someone's heart was open enough that there were, there were those who gave and poured in. Oh, look, I got to tell you, the rest of the story in a sense. So we know that John Price is now in Canada and what we also know is that he only lived, he died of tuberculosis a couple of years later, but we do know that they got him away. And, and there's a part of me that just wants to pull over and park with the idea of the, the order of things, the coordination, the, the, the complete uh, commitment and the perseverance and everything they went through, all of the things around this. But right now I need to talk about Charles Henry Langston, who I mentioned early on, a graduate of Oberlin. He's also Langston Hughes' grandfather. So he was born a free man, again to his mother had been enslaved by the father, if you will. He, the father held slaves and she was one of them. However, they had a relationship that although unable to marry legally, that's what it is described as. And he took care of the children and educated them. And later, in fact, it is said that the Langston brothers inherited, you know, they're a large part of their father's estate and so forth. But here's the thing. In talking about the liberation of the accused fugitive slave John Price in 1858, Charles Langston features prominently in that because it was in an act of what one could say is bold defiance. He led a group of white and black abolitionists and was arrested for violating that and that was the picture that you saw of the, the 37 folks. 35 of whom I think they kind of find and let off at various degrees of, but there were two that were actually charged and Charles Langston was among them. And he was convicted, in fact, for his part. There was something he, was, he said and was then misquoted in that. I know y'all don't believe this because this doesn't happen anymore. <laughs> but try to travel back with me in time when this is how it would go, that a black man would say a thing, it would be changed and then used against him, and the court at that time in the entire United States, black folks couldn't, well, frankly, the accused did not testify. The accused didn't testify, and black folks weren't testifying. So, um, 
So let me just talk about, um, mm, mm, mm. so he was convicted, but it, the conviction was so unpopular that he did not end up serving the entire time that he was given. But let me, let me get to what, what happened. So um, the, you know, the jury goes out and they come back and they find him guilty. And so the judge, um, he now has the opportunity to speak before sen sentencing. And I'm going to do my best to just like get to the parts because I love the whole thing. Y'all just going to have to read it yourself, but I'm going to read some parts and I'm going to just pray for me that I don't try to slip up and read the whole dang thing. So here we go. The court says to him, so you've been tried, Mr. Langston, by a jury and convicted of a violation of the criminal laws of the United States. Have you or your counsel anything to say why the sentence of the law should not now be pronounced upon you? And he says this, I am for the first time in my life before a court of justice charged with the violation of law and I'm now about to be sentenced. But before receiving that sentence, I propose to say one or two words with regard to the mitigation of that sentence. If it may be so construed, I cannot, of course, and do not accept, expect that anything which I may say will in any way change your predetermined line of action. I ask no favors at your hands. I know that the courts of this country, that the laws of this country, that the governmental machinery of this country are so constituted as to oppress and outrage colored men, men of my complexion. I cannot then, of course, expect, judging from the past history of the country, any mercy from the laws, from the Constitution, or from the courts of this country. And I'm skipping around because he had plenty to say in his two, three words. In the, no, no, I'm not even going to tell you that little part. Oh, hmm, hmm, hmm. Okay, but he's saying that with all that went on on that day in September when, when uh, John Price was captured, he said many of us believed that they would not have the courage to make a seizure because they knew they were looking at him and they were after them. But in the midst of all this excitement, the news came to us like a flash of lightning that an actual seizure by means of fraudulent pretenses had been made, and they were on. They were on it. The rest of that I have crossed out just to keep me from reading that part. So look, he says, the fugitive slave law under which I am arraigned is an unjust one. And this was the course, the court case, the first time where this notion of the higher law was ever entered. And the brilliance of his attorney in his closing argument, or no, in, in some of his um, cross-examination and his remarks, introduces this notion of a higher law. So they're holding him. The accusation is you've broke what you, you are in, out of alignment with the Fugitive Slave Act. So you are not following that law, and that's why you're here. But his attorney is saying there's a higher law, though, because that ain't right. And so people, churches, certainly ministers had, and abolitionists had been speaking to it, but it had never been spoken into the court record, this notion. And so there's this whole discourse where the judge is, is saying, now, wait, hold up now, that's, that ain't, that's not legal in this. But if you understand, and we see it today, and we understand more about that, there's that once an idea is spoken, it's the planting of a seed. And often it doesn't look like... I'm going to refer you to the parable of the sower that, you know, for some, they don't get it at all. But for others, they are changed forever. So anyhow, he goes on to say, this law is an unjust one. 
one made to crush the colored man, one that outrages every feeling of humanity, as well as every rule of right. I have nothing to do with its constitutionality, and about it I care a great deal less. I have often heard it said by learned and good men that it was unconstitutional. I remember the excitement that prevailed throughout all the free states when it was passed. And I remember how often it's been said to be individuals, conventions, communities, and legislatures that it never could be, never should be, and never was meant to be enforced. I have always believed until the contrary appeared in the actual institution of proceedings that the provisions of this odious statute would never be enforced within the bonds of this state, within the bounds of this state. But I have another reason to offer why I should not be sentenced and one that I think pertinent to the case. I have not had a trial before a jury of my peers. The common law of England, and you will excuse me for referring to that since I am but a private citizen and not a lawyer, was that every man should be tried before a jury of men occupying the same position on the social scale with himself, that lords would be tried before a jury of lords, that peers of the realm should be tried before peers of the realm vassals before vassals and aliens before aliens and they should not come from the district where the crime was committed lest the prejudices of either personal friends or foes should affect the accused. The Constitution of the United States guarantees not merely to its citizens but to all persons a trial before an impartial jury. I have had no such trial. The colored man is opposed by certain universal and deeply fixed prejudices. Those jurors were well known to have shared largely in these prejudices. And I therefore consider that they were neither impartial nor were they a jury of my peers. And the prejudices which white people have against colored men grow out of this fact that we have as people consented for 200 years to be slaves to the whites. We have been scourged and uh, crushed and cruelly oppressed and we have submitted to all tamely, meekly and peaceably. I mean as a people and with rare individual exceptions and today you see us thus, meekly submitting to the penalties of an infamous law. Now the Americans have this feeling, and it is an honorable one, that they will respect those who will rebel at oppression but despise those who tamely submit to outrage and wrong. And while our people as a people submit, they will as a people be despised. Why they will hardly meet the terms of equality with us in a whiskey shop, in a car, at a table, or even at the altar of God. So thorough and hearty a contempt have they for those who will meekly lie under the heel of the impressor. The jury came into the box with that feeling, he said. They knew they had that feeling, and so the court knows now and knew then. The gentlemen who persecuted me, who, I'm sorry, who prosecuted me, have that feeling. And even the counsel who defended me have that feeling. I was tried by a jury who were prejudiced before a court that was prejudiced, prosecuted by an officer who was prejudiced, and defended, though ably, by a counsel that were prejudiced. And therefore, it is your honor that I, that I urge by all good and great, all that is good and great in manhood, that I should not be subjected to the pains and penalties of this oppressive law, when I have not been tried either by a jury of my peers, nor to be a jury that, is impar that were impartial. One more word, sir, that I have done. I went to Wellington knowing that colored men have no rights in the United States, which white men are bound to respect. This, this, like if he hadn't already said enough, he's saying, look, when I left Oberton, Oberlin rather, going over to Wellington, 
I knew I had no rights. I knew that they could capture me and take me. I could spend 12 years a slave. I'm just, you know, trying to make it clear here. He said that the courts, the courts had so decided, that, con that Congress had so enacted, that the people had so decreed, there is not a spot in this wide country, not even by the altars of God or in the shadow of the shafts that tell the imperishable fame and glory of the heroes of the revolution. No, nor the old Philadelphia Hall. Blah, 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 goes on to say a bunch of stuff about that. People, some people may say that there's no danger of free persons being seized and carried off as slaves. No one need labor under such delusion. Sir, four of the eight persons who were first carried back under the Act of 1850 were afterwards proved to be freemen. They pre the pretended owner declared that they were not his after his agent had satisfied the commissioner, remember the $10, that they were by his oath that they were, but they were free persons, but wholly at the mercy of the oath of one man. He says, I could stand here by the hour and relate such instances. In the very nature of the case, they must be constantly occurring. A letter was not long found, I'm sorry, a letter was not long since found upon the person of a counterfeiter when arrested addressed to him by some southern gentleman and which the writer says, go among the niggas, find out the marks and scars and make good descriptions and send to me. I'll find masters for them. This is the way men are carried back to slavery. He goes on to say, this is, these are the facts as I know them. And that no matter what, he will hold it to be his duty just as he held it that day, that if possible, a legal in inquiry into the character or claim by which he's held, that he would always interfere, that no matter what he says, then I will say, then you will say with me that you would not only demand the protection of the law, but you would call in your neighbors and your friends and you'd ask them to say with you that these, your friends, could not be taken into slavery. And so the court responds. You have done injustice to the court, Mr. Langston, in thinking that nothing you might say could affect a mitigation of your sentence. You have presented considerations to which I shall attach much weight. I am fully aware of the evidence that was given to the jury, of the circumstances that were related, of your action in relation to the investigation of the cause of the detention of the fugitive and of your advice to others to pursue a legal course. And although I'm not disposed to question the integrity of the jury, still I see mitigating circumstances in the transaction, which should not require, in my opinion, the extreme penalty of the law. This court does not make laws. That belongs to another tribunal. We sit here under the obligations of an oath to execute them. And whether they be good, it is not for us to say. We appreciate fully your condition, and while it excites the cordial sympathies of our better nature, still the law must be vindicated. On reflection, I am constrained to say that the pen penalty in your case should be comparatively light. It is therefore the sentence of the court that you pay a fine of $100, that you be confined in the jail of the county 
under the direction of the marshal for a period of 20 days from this date and that you pay the cost of this prosecution. And in any case, any causality or other occurrence should render your confinement there insecure, that the marshal see the sentence executed in any other county jail within the district. So he's saying there, if you're not safe there, where I'm putting you, then they're to move you to a place where you will be safe. What the world needs now, right now, you see, I wish that this was a story that people would be fainting in the aisles because we could not believe that such a thing ever took place. Lord, I wish that, was, that that was our story, that right now y'all would just be revved, just don't quit making up stories because this could not be true. But unfortunately, I could have played a game like this happened day for yesterday. Last week, last year, I could have absolutely created a ruse and you would have been completely taken in knowing that we live in times that have changed a great deal and yet much seems the same. So this moving forward together Oh, it's tricky. It's, you know, you, just, you have to know you're moving forward. You have to know it. Because I'm trying to think here, because the Fugitive Slave Act, I think, was abolished in, so it started in 50, I think 68. Somewhere in there, somewhere in the 60s, 1860s. So the deal is that the pendulum swings, that we're in this, we're in this spiral, you know? And, and, and I know that there are those times when I want, it to, I want it to stop forever, you know, to just be done. But we don't tend to see that in history. We see humans repeating versions. But we don't have to look at history. We can look in the mirror. We, we begin to say, oh, but you have to pay attention. Oh, you didn't think I was coming for you? You thought we was just going to be in Oberlin. We was going to be talking about the people in Ohio and Kentucky. Uh-uh. Uh-uh. This is us. I'm always talking about us. That in our own, in your personal private life, That's what's on the table here, is our lives. What the world needs now is for each of us to love ourselves enough. Can you imagine that black folks got up and went to another town knowing they had no right to argue on behalf of Anybody. That, let me not be any more specific than that. There's not like a list of people they could argue for. Not a one. They could have every, you, you, and you, just shackles right here. That could have always happened. But they were trusting something beyond. This notion that they, they brought up that there's a, a higher law. 
that there's a higher consciousness, that there's a higher unfolding always. And our challenge, our charge, is to be about it. What the world needs now is for you to love. Come on, Brannis and Valerie Joy. What the world needs now is love, sweet love. It's the only thing that there's just too little love. What the world needs now is love, sweet love. No, not just for some but for everyone lord we don't need another mountain there are mountains and hillsides enough to climb there are oceans and rivers enough to cross enough to last Till the end of time What the world needs now Is love, sweet love It's the only thing That there's just too little love What the world needs now Is love, sweet love no, not just for some, but for everyone. Lord, we don't need another meadow. There are cornfields and wheat fields enough to grow. There are sunbeams and moonbeams enough to shine. Oh, listen, y'all, if you want to know what the world needs now is love, sweet love. It's the only thing that there's just too little love. What the Is love, sweet love, no, not just for some, but for everyone. What the world needs now is love, sweet love. It's the only thing that there's just too little love. What the world needs now is love. Sweet love, no, not just for some, but for everyone. Ooh, yeah. What the world needs now is love, sweet love. What the world needs now is love, sweet love. What the world needs now. His love, His love.
What the world needs now is love, sweet love. It's the only thing that there's just too little love. What the world needs now is love, sweet love. It's the only thing that there's just too little love. Thank you, Brannis McKenzie. Thank you. Thank you, Valerie Joy. I just, um, you know, I'm holding that song in a whole new context. Because much like the lyrics in the song that we have a lot of ideas about what the world needs. And we walk right past the thing that we could absolutely do ourselves. What we could absolutely be ourselves. We are wanting to create other stuff, have others do whatever might need to be done. But this ain't that. This is an opportunity for us to just love, please. Whew. And this is the place where I would typically do the prayer. And I've asked my, my beloved brother in ministry, Reverend Angelo Allen, if he would come and speak the prayer in our behalf. I'm just a little more worked up than I want to be, and I could use the prayer for me as well. And so I give you Reverend Angelo Allen. Thank you, Reverend Dr. Andriette. So let's use this opportunity to gently fall to center. To allow ourselves to be in that space that has no walls, no ceiling, no floor. Knowing that we are forever surrounded by an infinite love. A love that knows no bounds. A love that knows no obstructions. A love that knows no captivations. It is the love that is the life of God. This life is my life now. And this very same life is the life that is living and breathing and having its way in through and as each and every one of us. Each of us who are in attendance today at Heart and Soul Center of Light, albeit virtually, those of us who may never have heard of Heart and Soul Center of Light, all of those who have ever been, all who are yet to come, everything, everything, everything is evidence of the love of God being made manifest here and now. And so it is with this idea in mind, I know that love persists. Love is eternal. It is eternally expressing. It is inviting itself into every heart. It is allowing itself to heal the most egregious wounds. Love heals. 
Love saves. Love provides. Love is all we need. Four lads from Liverpool told us that's all that's required, love. The great sages of the world have instructed us that that's all we need is love. What the world always has needed, always will need, and always has access to is the infinite love of God. I know that that love is present here now. I'm knowing that somehow lives are being transmuted. Through this word and before this word, beyond this word, I'm knowing that there is a healing that is happening in the body temple. There's a healing that's happening in the realm of finances and, and any attitude toward abundance. I'm knowing that there is a healing happening in relationships. Relationships with those whom we know so well. Relationships with those who, those who we think we don't know at all. But in fact, we are all connected. We are all one in God. There's only one of us here. And I'm knowing that that one is undergoing a healing transformation right now. All we have to do is know it and claim it for ourselves. I am the love. The love is happening now. I'm grateful. I'm grateful for the opportunity to allow this word to speak itself through me. I'm grateful for an awareness that love is the only cosmic reality that matters. I am grateful for our senior and founding minister, Reverend Dr. Andriette Earl, for her wisdom, for her instruction, for her Sankofa way of seeing everyone and allowing herself to be seen as well. I am grateful for the wisdom of moving forward while remembering what came before. Grateful for all that has been said and shared this day, for every blessing, known and unknown, seen and unseen, that is yet unfolding. I am grateful for our board of trustees, our music ministry, for every hand that has touched this service. And I know that all is well. And so it is with a heart that is exceedingly full that I simply release this word into the perfect activity of love, which is what God is, and law which is how God operates according to our belief. I believe that every word that has come through this word is absolutely true. And if it resonates as truth for you, won't you know it with me simply by saying amen, ashe, and so it is.